Hello, everyone, and welcome back to EpiCentral. I'm your host, Maddie Lewis, infectious disease epidemiologist. And in today's episode, I am interviewing one of my peers named Hillary, and she got the same degree as I did in epidemiology, but instead of becoming an applied epidemiologist like myself, she does public health consulting. A lot of people ask about this career path on TikTok, so I thought I would interview someone who knows a lot more than I do. Hello, Hillary. Welcome to EpiCentral. Thanks, Maddie. Hillary, tell me about your journey to public health. When did you realize you wanted to work in public health or epidemiology? So I realized pretty early on that I wanted to work in public health. It took me a little bit later to realize that I specifically wanted to be in epidemiology. So for public health, I realized in undergrad that I was interested in it. And that really came about with a conversation on healthcare and how healthcare is viewed to be a luxury within the United States. That was something that got me personally very riled up and led me down the road of health disparities. And that's how I realized that after some internships too, I realized that that's where I wanted to spend most of my time. And then epidemiology took me a little bit longer to realize that that's what I wanted to do. For a while, I toggled between things like health policy and management, epidemiology, and biostatistics. I eventually landed on epidemiology because I wanted to get more quantitative work experience, and I also wanted that contextual factor as well. And in my mind, if I had chosen biostatistics, it would, I would get a lot of mathematics and statistics, but I wouldn't be getting as much contextual information. And so epidemiology seemed like it would be the good fit. What did that journey look like through undergrad and then deciding to go to grad school? What kinds of things were you doing? Yeah, so I did a good number of internships, um, which included paid and unpaid internships during undergrad. And then after undergrad, I worked for a couple of years within um, healthcare consulting. I worked for a boutique firm and I felt those experiences pulled all together gave me a good, a good idea of the landscape that was out there, as well as exposed me to a lot of different people. And I was able to see the skills that they were bringing to their jobs. Aside from that, I didn't do anything like, I wasn't part of any sort of missionary work or nonprofits prior to grad school. But I thought that, but that's, I think that that's okay because I like even just within um, undergrad and my job, I was able to get a good sampling of public health. And what did you major in in college? Yeah, I'm a very untraditional, I took an untraditional path into public health, or at least what's considered an untraditional path. So I will say that I'm not, I would say the common background that people come into, or at least what I observed at in grad school, is that a lot of people come in with a hard science background. So they, a lot of people come in with a major in biology, and you tend to see a lot of either current pre-meds or former pre-meds. And so that tends to be the traditional, the traditional route, I'd say, compared to the non-traditional route, which is more social sciences. Almost everybody I know majored in biology. That's the most common, but it's 100% true. You do not have to major in biology or any hard science to go into a master of public health or epidemiology. Yeah. And I will say too, that I think that there is an advantage of coming in as a non-traditional student because you think about things a little bit differently. 
because you're coming in with a different background and a different angle. And so when people have public health problems, you won't necessarily think about it from the medical perspective, but you're more likely to consider, at least coming in with like a social sciences background, you're more likely to consider those social factors. And I think one of the things that um, was evident for me was that I was clearly interested in healthcare because all of my prior experiences were within healthcare, even though I was a non-traditional major. And it's more so that I just chose to pursue it and explore it from a different perspective. So mm-hmm. what is consulting in general and what is public health consulting specifically? Sure. So consulting in general is when you go into an external organization or, or actually internal and you go in to solve their problems um, or propose solutions. And there's a big range in consulting in terms of the types of things people do. I think, though, that I would generally say that people tend to fall into maybe three buckets. The first being strategy, the second being implementation, and the third being staff augmentation. Um, so strategy is very, is very broad. Um, it covers a whole range of industries. But... At a very high level, strategy is helping to design a vision for either a a company, a nonprofit, or any type of organization. Um, You're helping to create a vision and a direction by which they're going to move in. So if you think about things like like the mission, for instance, of a nonprofit, um, whether it's to end global poverty, let's say, that something like that is what a strategy, some, something a strategy consultant might be working on. Um, additionally, it might be a little bit more, more focused, and so it could be the strategy for a particular initiative. So, for instance, someone might hire a strategy consultant if their goal is to end global poverty to think about how are they going to approach a particular a particular country. So, if they're looking at some, if they're looking at a, like a particular country then they might want to consider things like the culture, norms, the current status, and all the different factors that go into it and design it and determining how they're going to approach ending poverty in that particular country. When it comes to implementation, implementation is more like follow, actually following and executing on whatever strategy it is. So people who are pure strategy consultants are not actually putting those plans into place it's the implementation consultants who are actually putting the plans in place. Um, So that could be things like installing certain technology, basically anything that you need to actually get the job, to actually get whatever plan you have in place done. And then the third category of things, I'd say is staff augmentation. And in the case of staff augmentation, those are consultants that are hired in lieu of um, of full-time employees. And so consultants would come in in that case and they would actually carry out job roles in a particular organization. And that could be anything, um, anything from like administrative positions, tech positions, really just anything. I think that there are three categories, strategy, implementation, and staff augmentation. Okay, question. So for staff augmentation, what's the difference between that and like a contractor? Do you know what I mean? Contractors are, can be anything. Um, so as consultants, we are, co- we are contractors. Um, being a contractor just means that you have a contractual agreement 
with your client, which says that you will perform whatever agreed upon duties that you set that you agree to. And it also means that you are not, you are not an employee of that company, um, but you have the relationship via the contract. And so how that benefits the, your client is since you're not an employee, the client is not obligated to provide you things like benefits. Um, so things like 401ks, um, pensions, or even being responsible for a certain portion of your taxes. Instead, the client pays to an agreed upon rate or lump sum, depending on what's stipulated in the contract. And, they, and you work together towards meeting the objectives that are stated in your contract. And it's temporary. Whereas as an employee, you're, you have more of an expectation that you're gonna be at a company long-term. But as a contractor, the expectation is that you're there for the contract term. And in many cases, clients will choose to extend or renew contracts there's no like permanence when it comes to being a contractor. You're really, you truly are more of a freelancer in the sense that you're responsible for going out and getting contracts. So getting yourself business and also making sure that you have, you're either able to cultivate a relationship with a client so that they're interested in giving you more contracts or that um, you're getting new business and getting more contracts that way. So there's a lot more, there's a lot more flexibility with being a contractor because you, like, as not being an employee, you're able to do things like set your own hours and set expectations with clients. But there are drawbacks too because, because there is a lot less um, security in being a contractor. Okay, that makes sense. So contractors, some oftentimes work for themselves. And then if you're a consultant, you're working typically, well, you can work for yourself as a consultant, but mm-hmm. what you do is you work for a company. Right. And so you have stable employment with the company and then who the clients that you're contracting for um, can change over time. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So what are some examples of employers? Like what are the top firms and then what are like the clients you work for? And also what is a boutique firm? Sure. So the top firms I think are typically referred to as either being MBB or top four. So MBB is an acronym, which includes McKinsey, Bain, and BCG. I'm cutting in during the editing process to say that the big four are Deloitte, KPMG, EY, and PWC. All these acronyms. There are others as well, both large, like that are also large. So for instance, another large one is EY. And then People also think of, in terms of management consulting, people also think of like Oliver Wyman, um, used to be Strategy And, which I think is now part of, it's now part of, I can't remember, but sometimes sometimes there are mergers or acquisitions. And so like sometimes one firm gets swallowed by another, but, and then there are the smaller ones and the smaller firms are really what I refer to as boutique firms. Um, And so those are places where they, it might be boutique because of size, but it might also be boutique because of focus. So if it's a small firm, it's most likely a boutique firm because it's small. But then also a firm could be boutique because they might only focus in, for instance, public health, or they might only focus in finance or whatever industry it is. And so that would also make a firm a boutique firm because they only have a singular focus as opposed to the big four or MBB 
where they're truly everywhere in every industry, in every space they're there. Okay. So I have a friend, I have multiple friends who work at a consulting firm called Booz Allen Hamilton. Is that a boutique firm? Do you know? No. So Booz Allen is not a boutique firm. Um, they are one of the larger firms, although they're not in, they're not in the MVB or the big four. And so one of the things with MVB and big four is that they, I mean, Booz, I will say Booz Allen also has a very strong reputation within the marketplace. However, they're not part of the big four or MBB, but they are, but they are high up there. And something if you look at into is like rankings in Volt and other sort of publications, the, those are published annually. And one of the things that they do is that they rank different consulting firms on different dimensions. And so it's very common to see firms that are part of the MBB and the big four consistently show up at the top of those lists, whereas like other firms might sort of fluctuate throughout the years. But, um, but, but by no means what I call Booz Allen a boutique firm. Thank you. I had no idea. Um, so what are the firms that MPH students wanting to go into consulting for public health consulting, where should everybody be looking? What kinds of firms? Because I think like a firm like EY, doesn't that focus more on like finance and business and less on public health? Different firms have stronger reputations in different industries and among different clients. So each firm already has a certain market stake in like, let's say public health, for instance. And for public health students, I honestly would not recommend looking at one particular firm, I would actually recommend looking for, if they're interested in public health consulting, I'd recommend looking for based on the role and the, and the job description, because sometimes a role might actually be public health consulting without actually saying public health consulting. So for instance, my current role, would you would not know that I was working in public health unless you actually talk to me because my position is actually um, common among public sector. Without having a direct conversation, you wouldn't know specifically that I'm in public health. Um, so I think that one of the things that's important to look for is to go to company websites to see if they do any work within the public sector or also private sector. Private sector, I would include things like healthcare, so think health insurance companies, or even think about like pharma, so pharmaceutical companies too, if they do work in those things, because even if you're not in the public sector and you're in the private sector, you can still do job functions that are very similar to the things that you learn during a traditional public health program. So for instance, you might not be doing, you might not be working on a data analysis for the FDA, but maybe you're working for on a data analysis project for some pharma company like Merck or Pfizer. Should have gone with Pfizer and uh, Astra, AstraZeneca and Moderna for the sake of, for the sake of like relevancy and the modern, like right now with all the vaccines going out there. But anyway, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> Those are, I already gave my examples. Um, but my whole point being that you can take your public health training and work in like, and work either directly in public health or like public health adjacent where you're effectively in public health and still be still do consulting work that is relevant. Um, so that's why I say I focus on the job descriptions and be open to different firms because at the end of the day, the first company that you work for doesn't have to be your last. You can always move around, boomerang, 
Boomerang means you can come back to a firm that you previously worked for. So if you work for, let's say, firm A, you leave and go to firm B, you can always come back to firm A, and that would be considered Boomerang. Yeah, and there's a lot of advantages of Boomeranging, too, because the advantage for the, like your initial firm is that they, have, they don't have to spend as much time training you. You already worked there once and knew the culture. The culture may have shifted since you were last there, mind you, but for the most part, you'll know how you'll know the processes and um, and requirements that they have. You'll probably also know some people already have a network where at your current firm. You will also likely be able to get through various security clearances faster, so they can get you up and running on projects much faster when you're boomeranging. And then also for you too, you have a little bit of security knowing that, knowing having a better idea of the work, what the work environment will look like. So there, there are definitely advantages to it. Yeah. So I think that some companies are starting to get, trying to get more presence right now in public health. I think, well, I know for sure the big ones. So McKinsey, Bain, BCG, also um, Deloitte, Accenture. I actually don't know about KPMG or PwC, but those ones will definitely have um, positions within public health. Also on the, like outside of that, you mentioned Booz Allen, that's, a, that's another one. Um, there's also this firm called FTI Consulting that a lot of, I've seen a lot of um, former, a lot of former workers come into grad school for public health and then exit and go back into as well. There's also Optum, which is another big one. Another firm is called ICF. And I'd say too, like look for keywords, things like public, public um, healthcare, health by its, itself, um, if they do any work with the federal government, or if they mention doing work for state, local, state and local government, those are indicators that they might be doing work within public health. Um, or even if you also, of course, keywords public health too. <laughs> Let's not forget the obvious. Um, so yeah, so there's, there, so I, I think that those are pretty much the keywords that you you like you would keep look out for if you're specifically trying to work within consulting and public health. One of the really important things that you need to know going into your job search is what do you search for? Because if you mm -hmm. can't find the types of jobs you're looking for, it's probably because you don't have good search terms. So mm -hmm. you already named some search terms. Do you have others? Um, I know when I was looking, um, I was not looking to be consultant, but I did see a lot of consultant jobs when I looked up data analyst mm -hmm. um, or data analysis. And then if you look at the company name, if it's a consulting firm, then you're usually like an analyst, you know, for a consulting firm. So mm -hmm. that's another one. But do you have any more? Yeah, I'd also recommend looking based on whatever your area of interest is. And by that, I mean, whatever subject area you're working in. So for instance, if you're interested in mental health, um, you could also pair a search for like data analysts with mental health. And there will be some firms that are do that do work specifically in that area. And so it also, so I think that that's also a good way to pair with those other broad terms. And that would help narrow things down. Okay. And then it's okay if not, but do you have any other tips for students for the online job search? Go through your school website because 
typically if you see a post, not all the time, but typically if you see a post on your school's website, it means that the whatever company is listed on there has some sort of stake in your school and is interested in hiring people from your program. And so that's where people who are currently in grad school are thinking about going that route. Um, they have pre-existing relationships and chances are too that whatever career counselors are there have some familiarity with a company and have a relationship with recruiters who are there. Also, there are recruiters. I personally have not worked with a recruiter myself, but I have heard from other people that working with a recruiter can be very beneficial um, because recruiters are incentivized to hire people ASAP. They want to have be able to say that we have all these candidates and we've hired one. So that's how they're incentivized. So sometimes working with a recruiter can be really helpful and sometimes not so much. In the cases where I've heard working with recruiters not, has not been very beneficial, it's because they haven't um, specified or, the, or maybe they have specified, but the recruiter is just giving them positions that are outside of those specifications in, in terms of what they're looking for. But a recruiter can help substantially by helping you find those positions that you'd be a good fit for and that are actively hiring. Because one of the problems, I will say, with the cold application process is a lot of those jobs have been up there since the dawn of time, and the, the position is not actually open in many cases, or they already have someone in mind for the position, or maybe they already have some sort of pipeline in place where they're going to get those positions. That's why applying on the campus website is really helpful, because that is Camp, the campus recruiting is a pipeline for many firms, especially in consulting. And that is because one, one of the things people know when they recruit from certain schools is that they know the standards that the schools have, whether it's because of accreditation or because of other prior hires that they've had from that school. And so people have, and so you come, so people, so you come in having some sort of credibility based on that, like based on just affiliation with that school. And that's why that pipeline can be really helpful for getting into a lot of the top firms. But yeah, applying online cold is definitely less than ideal. Ideally, you apply warm um, either through someone a peer that you have that works at a firm who gives you a referral, or you do, or maybe you do a cold network, but then a warm handoff into the company where maybe you cold to message someone on LinkedIn, but then that person gives you some information and insight that you can then use to apply for the position. And they can also probably tell you which positions are there, are there more aggressively looking for candidates. That's a really good idea. So kind of take, take your online job search offline by reaching out to recruiters. I know you can find recruiters on LinkedIn and on Google just by searching like, you know, recruiters for this firm or whatever, mm -hmm. um, as well as job fairs. And I assume if you contact your school, your, when you're in your MPH program, if you have a career office, which you should, then you can go ahead and ask them. Um, I'm not sure if they have that information, but you should ask. They will most likely have that information because a lot of schools are, have relationships with firms and that might be created through recruiters. And then there, sometimes too, recruiters really will just reach out to you sometimes too. So there's so many routes. Um, I wouldn't like put recruiters as your top option. I honestly think that the best way to go about it is networking. 
um, and creating those connect, creating those connections and getting referrals if possible, because that just automatically will help get your application to the top of the pile. That is so true. Like I said, I have several friends in several different companies in public health consulting, and there is one company I'm not going to name because I don't want to get sued um, or something, <laughs> but uh, there is one company that I know of where you basically are not really considered, you, you are at the bottom of the pile if you don't have a reference. So if you, and that's not true for every company for sure, but to increase your chances anywhere, it's always best to have a reference. So if you do know someone, like you were in a club with someone who's like a year older, maybe, um, and you were, you know, you had some kind of professional, like student peer relationship with, it doesn't hurt to reach out, right? And just ask them like, hey, I'm thinking about applying for this job. Um, will you tell me more? And then maybe at the end of that conversation, see if they would want to be a reference. How do you go about that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, a piece of advice I recently got was to um, network with people that you have something in common with. So kind of like what you mentioned, by you may have been in the same club together at some point. That's a commonality that you could bring up. You may have gone to the same school, whether it's grad school or undergrad. That's another commonality. Um, for women of color, it's oftentimes, a co- that is also a commonality. Um, so really anything that you would have in common with someone, you're more likely to get a positive response from them if you share something in common. And I'd say like, keep it short with your messages too. You, you do not need to send them a, a whole essay when you reach out to them. A life story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do not send that person your personal statement. Um, keep it, <laughs> keep it short. And they're also more likely to read it and get them and understand the message. They'll understand that there's like, you're looking to network um, and learn more. So then I'd say that that's really what I found to be most successful too, with my own networking. Um, For me, like I tend to, I look, I tend to look for other people of color, especially if I can find other women of color, I'll reach out to them. And I try to keep my messages like short and to the point. So think two to three sentences that you send out to someone just, and it's a, it's a cold reach out, but two to three sentences that you send to someone and like, you just, and you just ask if they have 15 minutes to talk, to talk with you because chances are everybody has 15 minutes. That's really, really good advice. So I want to keep asking about the application process since we're already on that conversation. So what does the application process look like for public health consulting? I, I don't know much about it, but I do know it's a little bit different compared to other jobs in public health. Like I know the timeline is a little bit earlier. So just give us the whole rundown. Okay. So the process varies and it depends on how you want to come into the company. If you're trying to come in through a campus recruiting pipeline, then there will be a set timeline that whatever for your target firm will have. And if that's the case, then typically they tend to recruit in the fall and you'll start the following spring to summer. And so what that means is that in the fall, so think October, November, you will, you will apply, go through the whole process, get, get an offer, accept it. And then in the spring, summer timeframe, so let's say August, like the following August is when you might start. 
So there's quite a bit of a gap time between when you apply and when you start. However, that's not the only pathway to get into any firm. Um, firms are always hiring, especially now because the economy is just so hot right now. Um, and so you can also apply, you, you can also get referred in or apply on the website and at any time of the year and start really at any time. So I know one person at my current firm who I want to say they applied in the spring and they started in the summer. And so it was about three months after they applied and went through the process is when they started. So much less um, lag time. And similarly, if you're coming in as an experience, um, as an experienced hire, so you're coming in with prior work experience, you might be starting maybe one month after you put in your application. So depending on the depending on the pathway at which you're entering, the timeline will vary. Okay, that makes sense. So you're saying for certain firms or depending at what school you're at, you might be applying your third semester out of, so there's four semesters and a master of public health degree. And the mm -hmm. third one is the second fall, obviously. So you would be, I do know somebody who just went through this and they got hired they went through the app process and interview process. It was multiple interviews and they were hired, I think in October mm -hmm. at a major firm. Um, so that's pretty common, right? Yeah. So with the campus recruiting pipeline, it, that tends to be the timeline. Yes. But then if you're not going through a recruiter or some kind of like that type of pipeline, you're just kind of cold applying, then you mm -hmm. can kind of apply at any time. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I do another thing too, just because you let, just because you apply through the campus recruiting pipeline and let's say you don't get an offer, it's not the end of the road for you. Um, there are so many different pathways by which you can enter your target firms. And so I think it's really about like being strategic in terms of like the opportunity that you choose to pursue and how you position yourself to reapply. Yes, that's really good to mention. So, I mean, I think that's true in all of the job application, job search processes. You're going to get rejections and you're going to probably get more rejections than you get offers. Mm -hmm. I know for me, I applied to 50 jobs and within a two or three month time span, I got one interview and one offer and it happened to be the exact place that I wanted to work. And so it feels really discouraging up front because you might not hear at all from so many places, or you might be just getting these automatic rejections, like they already filled it, uh, you're not who we're looking for, whatever, whatever. And then, but at some point, you're most likely going to find a job and hopefully it'll be a job that you end up really liking. So yeah, don't give up. Exactly. And I have faced a good number of rejections myself. Um, I'm pretty sure I applied an undergrad for my current firm, rejected. <laughs> Years later, reapply, got an offer and accepted. So it, we all go through it. And I think that one thing that's good is get it to do is to get comfortable with rejection because the more comfortable you are with it, the more willing you are to put yourself out there and pursue opportunities. Um, yeah, I'd say too that when you're a perfectionist, Oftentimes, like wanting, like the fear of rejection is so, is so high that it causes so much inertia 
in your job search process or really anything, because you think, because that fear of failure, the fear of rejection kind of, it sort of paralyzes you. And that's what you don't want to have happen. You kind of like, you should just go in expecting to see rejections. And when it happens, ideally you try to learn from them. It's really helpful sometimes when firms will actually tell you why, like give you a rationale behind why like you didn't get the offer. And that is quite common if you're already, if you get into the interview process and let's say you make it into the second stage of interviews, but then you don't get, you don't get an offer. It's more common than for them to give you some sort of rationale behind why you were not ultimately given that offer versus if you're, if you've put in an application on the website and get one of those automatic rejections, then it's not very likely that you will get a rationale behind why they didn't hire you. Um, but I would say take advantage of those opportunities where you can actually learn why you were not given an offer. That's really, really great advice and good things to know. So I think another big question that people have, people ask me this when it comes to getting into an MPH program. Uh, so I think a lot of people are going to be wondering about consulting. So what kinds of things are they looking for? And applicants, are they looking for competence? Uh, is it grades? Uh, is it the personal statement? Is it the interview? Um, I know it, obviously it depends on the firm, but in general at these big consulting companies, what do you think they're, they are looking for? Yeah, I get that question a lot from people. And I always say that it's good to make sure that you're keeping up with your academics. So making sure that you have a respectable GPA and respectable, I'd say is above a three, a 3.0. And then, and that, I think that that will just kind of, that that's one of those things that's kind of like an easy screener for them, because if they have an applicant with a three something and an applicant with a two something, it's very easy to, to screen on that factor just numerically. And then in terms of the actual coursework that you're doing, there's no right answer for that, unfortunately, because consulting is this ever-changing world. Um, and it's changing based on, it changes based on how the actual world is changing and the direction the world is heading. Uh, so to give you an example of that right now with all these conversations about the metaverse and virtual reality, that is going to, that is anticipated to change the workforce how we like entertainment, how we spend our free time. Um, and so consulting is going to, the world of consulting will also change to adapt to that. And so let's, and so when you're studying things like, when you're trying to figure out what coursework you should take, I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose my, your course curriculum based on what is just only based on what's hot right now. I would truly pick your course curriculum based on what interests you. Because another thing that's important going into consulting is authenticity, because at the end of the day, one of the things that is very important as a consultant is your credibility. And part of that is how much people feel like they can trust you. And so if you're someone who's not interested in something and you're trying to explain it to someone or you're trying to get a job based on that thing, people will people will sense it. Um, and it's just it's it's one of those things that you like innately will do. Like you will just, you will just be able to sense that someone's not truly interested in something. So you're what you're far better off studying and choosing things that genuinely interest you and things that you're genuinely passionate about because the world of consulting will forever be in flux. And like, even if today something that you're interested in is not the hot skill or the hot topic, it might become that 
Um, and even if it isn't the hot skill or hot topic, there might be very few people who are doing it and there might be a need for that skill or topic today anyway. So at the end of the day, you're better off pursuing what you're genuinely interested in or genuinely passionate about. And I'd also say like to choose a more skills-based approach where you're, where you're constantly looking to upskill yourself and be able to demonstrate the ability to learn quickly and to be adaptable. That's really good. So what you think these firms are looking for are people who are that are just authentic and passionate in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people, exactly. Because I think that that feeds into the trustworthy aspect. Because as a consultant, when you're put in front of clients, your client, they're not going to tell you this, but in the back of their mind, whether consciously or unconsciously, they're going to be processing whether or not they think that you are a trustworthy person and whether or not they should listen to you. So with that said, do you think they're also, these firms are also looking for people with really good um, interpersonal communication skills, really good interviewers, um, and people just that have like that high confidence to be able to communicate well? Absolutely. Um, Even for even when we think about staffing projects, you want to staff people who are going to lead to very good team interactions and very and are able to collaborate with the team very well because that at the that at the end of the day will help improve your team's performance. Yes, you need people with specific skills, but if you can get someone with specific skills who also is a very good fit for your team culture, then that's even better. So, those soft skills are really important. And you don't have to take a class on soft skills to be good at soft skills. I think when it comes to soft skills, it's more just about practice. Um, and I also think that one good one thing to do as well, it's a little cliche. I'm sorry, but it's a little cliche. But I'd also say too, it's, and it's from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. They say, listen first. Um, like, so listen first to, be un- to understand and then to be understood. And so being able to listen, being an active listener is really important, um, especially because for us, we are oftentimes put into projects or situations where we're not very familiar with what's going on. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be some sort of new situation, new disease, um, or you're coming into a new disease state area, a new disease state, even if that disease has been around for a long time. And so it's very important to be able to listen and understand what your client's pain points are, um, to be able to like be able to ideate and come up with a solution that's going to work for them. Um, yeah, if you miss out on that listening piece, then whatever you come up with is not going to be the right fit. And even if you might, even if it might be a great idea, they like your client will likely likely rate it as a really poor um, deliverable or just a poor strategy. And so listening is really crucial. And so are those interpersonal skills. Really great advice. So kind of going back to the application and the job search, when you do get an interview um, in public health consulting, what do you expect? Can you expect multiple rounds? Are there a specific type of interview that they tend to use in consulting? Yeah. Um, I do think that you can expect to go through a behavioral interview. The behavioral interview is common in basically every job where they will ask you things like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? How well do you work on teams? And those 
So those types of questions. Um, but then depending on the firm that you're applying to, they may or may not also have this thing called case interviews. And case interviews are when they will give you scenarios that have come up either um, in the past or imaginary scenarios. And they will ask you to solve a problem. And you'll have, and the tools that you'll have are your knowledge, right? The things that you've learned over the years. But then you also will have um, the toolkit that is, I want to say, like consultant's greatest strength, which is just being able to ask questions and uncover information. Because oftentimes it's an imaginary situation that they give you. And so you have to, you have to, you have to understand the full situation. You also have to understand, you also have to understand what resources you might have available for you. And you can work with the interviewer to solve the problem. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's really important in case interviews that you can that you like need to actually work with your interviewer in that case to get to your final, to get to your final recommendation. Because you, like when you're given the problem, they oftentimes don't give you that much information upfront, and like, but your interviewer has the information, and so you need to draw that information out of them, and so and like you do that by collaborating with that person, like and keeping your cool too, because it's very easy to feel flustered in those case interviews because it can feel very high stakes, and sometimes they throw these random numbers at you too, and you're like, how do I deal with these random numbers? How do I add, multiply? divide. And so I think part of it is just keeping your cool and composure as well. And I didn't answer this earlier, Maddie, sorry, but yes, expect multiple rounds. So, okay. So I had two rounds of interviews. The first round had behavioral and case interviews, or rather the first round had a behavioral interview and a case interview. And then the second round also had a behavioral and a case interview. And that's one of those things that you can ask them upfront before you even go into the interview situation, you can ask them like, okay, um, how many rounds of interviews should I expect? What is the expected timeline? What kind of interview am I going to go into? Am I going, like, should I be prepping for a case interview? You can ask those things. Um, because, and the worst thing that people can say when you ask them is I can't tell you that. Um, but so, so that's why I'm like, you can ask those questions and find out before you go into your interview, the type of situation you're going to be facing. Um, and for me, my interviews were, they were not particularly long. I want to say round one was about an hour and round two was about an hour. If I'm, if I'm remembering that correctly. However, I've also heard from other people that for their round one will be one hour and then their round two interview will be three hours. And so it, well, depending on the firm, sometimes what they like to do in that second round, um, in the case where it is a three hour second round, if that's the case, chances are you are, you are, very, you are a very good contender at that point because otherwise they wouldn't waste time having you meet with so many different people, but they'll use those three hours to schedule a bunch of back-to-back -back interviews. And part of that just feels like endurance, to be honest. Um, but I think part of it too is also like, learning from all the initial people you talk to, to strengthen your conversations with the later people that you talk to. Um, so it really varies. Some firms, especially boutique firms, they tend to not ask you to do the case interviews. It's usually the larger firms that will ask you to do case interviews. And they usually will ask more, at, more so at the entry levels. So when you start hitting levels like manager and above, 
they tend to they tend to stop or do very little of that case interviewing because it's not really as important. Okay, great information about getting into consulting. So now that you are a public health consultant, what does a day in the life look like for you? So I wake up pretty early in the mornings. I wake up uh, like around 530. I wake up, go do a morning exercise. Then I come back, make breakfast, have a protein bar. Um, we'll oftentimes listen to the news, listen to a podcast, listen to an audiobook, YouTube videos, whatever it is. I just like to listen to things as I'm cooking breakfast or and also as I'm eating breakfast. Um, just to soak up what's some of what's going on in the world and be a little bit more connected that way. And then I will um, log into work, at which point I usually spend my first couple of minutes just going through my emails to see if there's anything important that I've missed, deleting a lot of those sort of company-wide emails that they send us. Um, and then we'll check, I'll check in, like at what point I'll have a check-in with my team We'll just like talk about the priorities that we have for the given week, anything that's upcoming, any like risks that we might see. Um, and then at which point it's depending on the day, sometimes it's a lot of meetings. Other times we have a lot more time to actually work on things and, uh, and to, like whether that's a deliverable or like research that you're doing. Um, I haven't done in case you're wondering, I have not done like a 7.30 to 7.30 type of day. I'm more likely, personally, once I hit around 5.30, 6 p.m., I need to log off personally, at which point I will I actually exercise again in the evening, um, come back, shower, eat something, and then at which point if I need to get back online, I'll get back online and finish up whatever I was working on during the day or start or prep whatever I need to prep for the next day. Um, or I'll come back, watch some news, do some reading. Again, I just like to amass information, so I'm so I do a lot of so I do a lot of like listening to the news, listening to podcasts, being on YouTube, um, and then I will oftentimes catch up with friends, like spend a little bit of time catching up with friends too. I'm a big phone person. Um, I actually don't really love texting, so I, I probably because I don't like texting. I don't love emailing at work either because I'm just. Find I spend so much time trying to construct an email properly and hit the right tone and whatnot. And I'm like, I would be so, I'm so much better just if I can just get on the phone with people versus having to do a written, like a written communication because I have to spend time thinking about it and making sure that it's like what you're trying to, what you want communicated is getting communicated in the right way. Um, but yeah, I think that is what my typical day looks like. I don't typically... Funny enough, I actually should probably spend more time outside. I probably will once the weather gets better. We'll probably transition my morning workouts to being outside. Um, but yeah, I'm typically I'm typically like very much a homebody, and so I do things like in my apartment, including every now and then I'll get a little bit of a pinch to decorate. But that's something that I'm still working on myself. Um, one thing I have been doing recently though is spending a lot of time on just like skincare and self care. And I'm finding that to be really fun. Wow. That's a very impressive day in the life. It does not surprise me that you are a 530 girl. <laughs> I only recently <laughs> became a 530 girl. I used to say that I'm a wake up early and make breakfast type of person, not a wake up early and go exercise type of person. So my morning exercise tends to be very 
low intensity. I try not to get my cortisol levels going up high in the mornings. Like I just want to kind of wake myself up a little bit. Um, and then I come back and eat breakfast and at which point, like my brain is starting to turn on. So that's good. But my brain is not fully operational at five 30. You sound like you work hard, but you still have really good life balance. Would you say that's true? Well, I say that's true only because that's really like well-being is really important to me personally. Um, like for me, it's really important to be able to have that time before you go to bed, to be able to wind down, light a candle, like talk to someone, have some, like have some social interaction. That is really important to me, but I can easily see, I can easily see a lot of other consultants, for instance, not giving themselves that time and just working, like working straight through and working a lot of hours, um, or rather a lot more hours than me. And I think, and part of it too, is because some people who are doing consulting are also working for, so for me, I don't work, I'm working for government clients. I'm not working for for-profit clients. And so people who are working for for-profit clients, I think have a lot more hours. And so they probably don't, like they may not set as much time aside for their own personal well-being. So that's why I'm saying it's only because it's important to me that I get it, that I get it in there, but I'm sure that there are other consultants out there where they just haven't yet prioritized it. And so are just, are kind of just like grinding all day. Yes. I really love that. Um, I am also someone who I prioritize my free time and my work-life balance. Some of my coworkers, they'll even work on the weekends. I'm like, what are you doing? We literally work for a nonprofit. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, that is not my vibe. If someone wants to do that, that's fine. But I really think the, when you're not a doctor, you're not a nurse, you're not something like that. No one's going to die if something doesn't get done that at that minute, you know? So if, if I don't get something done on Friday, I'll do it Monday. And if I'm hitting all my deadlines and I'm meeting or exceeding expectations, I'm not going to work any, any harder than that. I'm not going to lie. Like I'm, not harder, but I'm not going to work any longer. So right. I stop my work at five thirty. Yeah, there's so also diminishing returns to working too. After a certain point in time, you're no longer productive. So um, true. Yeah, and then my personal philosophy too is I'd actually rather work. I'd rather work more hours than work like in a crazy state. So if you know, if I, so, for instance. If we have a if we have a deadline that something needs to be submitted on Monday, I would actually rather work a little bit on Saturday or Sunday and like get that extra time in versus like working like just continuously working throughout like all night like to late hours on Friday for instance to get something done. I'd rather cut my time. I'd rather cut my day off by like by 6 on a Friday and then work a little bit on Saturday or Sunday so that I can then deliver whatever it is on Monday. So that is me personally, but I, again, I know there are people who would actually just work Friday night and I've even seen people in office buildings like 10 PM on Friday nights. And I don't, I'm like, wow, I don't know if it's that serious. Maybe it is. I don't know what you're working on, but for me, like, that's not something I would be interested in doing. Oh my God. Yes. I think the same thing. I'm like, is, is this necessary? Like I get when people work in finance and it's like, oh, there's like $5 million at stake. But mm-hmm. in so many other industries, I'm like, is, is this, this is not big of a deal, but you know, that's none of my business. So what are the ins and outs, the tea in public health consulting 
what's, I know it totally depends on where you work, but in general, are people overworked? How many hours do you think most people work in consulting? Would you recommend it to students? All of those things. Yeah, I think in general, people are doing, people are, are doing better than our commercial counterparts. Um, I think the, all the different firms that I've ever interviewed with within public health or healthcare, everyone always seems to have some sort of work-life balance in place. And for some people that's, they, they're like, I work from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then I use the rest of my time for me. Um, other people, they say I work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And like, those are my hours. For others, I think it's being able to protect their weekends, even if they're working a lot during the weekday. Um, but it's been a common thing that every firm that I've interviewed for, I never and asked that and asked like, what's the work-life balance like? Um, they usually will tell me that there's a good work-life balance and it's usually valid, like validif- verified as well. When I go and do my internet searches of looking at sites like Glassdoor and now Reddit, it's usually verified. Um, but other, other segments of consulting, not so much. Okay. So it sounds like your perception, like your experience in consulting and probably most, um, most that I've heard of at least, it seems to be busy and you work hard, but you still have that life balance and it's, it's nothing too out of hand. That, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. What do you think the average pay is for students going from their MPH into consulting? Mm-hmm. What do you think that is? Oh, so the answer, once again, is it depends, unfortunately. Um, so I think it depends on it depends on if the person has any prior work experience, first of all, or if they're coming, if they were if they went straight from undergrad into their master's program and they're now applying for their first job ever. Um, And then it will also depend on geography. So if you're applying to work in um, California versus Idaho, I'm just making, I'm just giving you an example. I don't know that that's someone, someone would be choosing between those two states, but just for the sake of example. So if you move to, if you're looking for a region or an area where the cost of living is very high, and the and the firm and the firm is based in that area. They will likely pay more money just because the cost of living is higher, and that they understand that they have to adjust for that. Versus, if you're applying for a place with a lower cost of living, then they will not pay you as much because it doesn't cost as much to live there. Um, and so, honestly, the range is so the range is very dramatic. I would say that it probably ranges from anywhere from 50k to 120k going from your MPH into your first, into your first consulting job. I do tell people on TikTok, like, don't get into public health at all for the money, because that's not where you're going to find money. But if you do get into public health, and you happen to be interested in consulting, that is where you're going to find the higher range of salaries uh, for people with their MPH. So yeah, um, I, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. I will say that I've started seeing public health positions getting better funded in recent times. Um, and so for instance, it's, it's possible and it's out there that there are people who are working entry-level government positions, making more than me, 
um, same like same city. And it's just because of the additional funding that's coming that's been coming into public health. I hope that in future times that changes. I hope that this pandemic really shows people the importance of public health, what happens when it goes wrong. Um, or like I shouldn't even say like when it goes wrong, but like I just want, I hope that people really value the importance of public health and the role that it plays in our society and keeping everyone healthy, and that in turn, they start to pay public health professionals more. Completely agree. Okay. Thank you, Hillary. We're about to get kicked off in like 20 seconds. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on EpiCentral. I really appreciate it. Bye. Okay, everyone. That was a long episode, but I hope you found that informative and I will see you next week. Bye. (laughs) 